This is the one with a daddy mega head. Nelly Melba's party piece. A viscosity level of 40% solids. And some sweet, sweet tentacle action. It's called The Power of Crawl. <laughs> Here we Here go. We go. <laughs> We're embarking on a voyage all through time and all through space Counting Daleks, Thalan, Oot and the Cybertronic race Sontarans look like taters and Silurians all have wonky scales And the Doctor has a TARDIS, we're reviewing all his tales Who back when? Reviewing all of who there is Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes please Episode by episode we're trudging down this temporal Come join us on this odyssey, what other choice could there be than Who back when? Who back when? What ho there, people out there in podcast land. How are we all doing? You are on an adventure with us this evening to talk about the power of crawl, of course. C-0. <gasps> C-102, not zero. Oh. C-102. <laughs> and you're on this journey with myself here, Jim, and the wonderful, as always... Oh, Leon. Hello there. Leon? Oh my oh. god, it is you. And I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> And we're recording across Skype again because we're mid-corona. We are. Yeah. So hope everyone's staying at home, staying safe and... Trying not to listen to the British government too much. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, we hope you are all doing well and this is reaching your earballs in a nice, comfortable fashion. And if it allevi- <laughs> alleviates any boredom, we are happy to oblige and keep you entertained. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Mr. Leon. Hello. More, more importantly, oh. how, how do you feel about the power of crawl as a general level, do you think? Well, firstly, I was absolutely sure that I had seen this. Nope, pretty sure I haven't seen this. <laughs> feels as like a, one you would remember a bit more clearly. Yeah, definitely. I think what it is, is I'd only seen screenshots or maybe some clips of the actual crawl, you know, the the view of it having arisen from the depths. But um, no, this was completely new to me. And I think we said the last time that this is generally considered the lesser of the Key to Time serials. Like this is the least popular one. Yeah. I didn't hate it that much. No, I would agree. I I did not hate it. I feel like I'm probably on the fence a bit. I mean, it's no rebus operation. No. (laughs) And it's no pirate planet. No. (laughs) (laughs) What else have we got? It's no androids of Tara. Absolutely not. (laughs) No. So it probably is true. This is the lesser of the Key to Time episodes, but it's not bad. There's some good shit in here. We're going to unpack it. Um, But before we do that, though, shall we give everyone a brief little summary? You know, some might say a bite-sized chunk of who. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Time for us to synopsize, levify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brief and listen to this overview. This free-for-all we like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. The fourth Doctor and Romana track down the next segment of the Key to Time on the third moon of Delta Magna, where some industrially inclined white chaps have subjugated the Aboriginal green people while setting up shop and stealing their resources. The green so-called Swampies have put their faith in their giant tentacled god Kroll to deliver them from evil, however, and when Kroll actually turns up, Doc and Romana have to summon all of their wits not to be sacrificed to the squid monster by the Swampies, or be shot as traitors by the human colonists. Peace Peace go over. over. You, you are, are welcome. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Putting a new spin on that. I like it. <laughs> Where do we start? Okay. Firstly, I think we can agree it's dry feet. 
Okay, it's not dry foots. Because <laughs> <laughs> holy moly, did that bug me. <laughs> this is like the thing in um, Lord of the Rings. Oh, is it? The Proud Wait. Foots or the Proud Feet. <laughs> ah, yeah, I did not make that connection. <laughs> I don't but know that if that me. is a connection. But, but perhaps on a more serious note, I wonder if maybe we should just start with companion material because there's precious little of it in this serial. That's very true, actually. There's no K9. Where's K- where is K9? Do we even get a, an explanation for the lack of K9? That they land in a swamp. Yeah but, yeah, but he could still radio in from the TARDIS. He could be useful. He's not, though. No, that's very true. I noted straight away that they they had landed in the swamp, and they very quickly say, oh, K-9 stuck there. K-9 is marooned. Yeah, not um, going to be able to travel around. Like, yeah, okay. does that mean K-9 won't be appearing at all? <laughs> apparently and so. Yes, that's what it means, apparently. Yeah. Um, I mean, do, do we get straight into our little bit of trivia as to what that means, though, from the casting point of view? Yeah, sure, go for it. Because that means that the actor that normally voices K-9 is freed up for a one time only, as far as I'm aware, on-screen appearance as himself. That's right. <laughs> well, not as himself. John Leeson playing what? John Leeson. <laughs> on the third moon of Delta Magna, John Leeson is on holiday. <laughs> okay, but you fair I, to point that out. I mean, like, his physical appearance. <laughs> did you Did you recognise him? I did not recognise him. I didn't even recognise his voice, to be honest. Did no, you? nor I. Nor I. In my notes, I've got him down as discount Mark Hamill up until the very <laughs> end. <laughs> When I looked up the cast list and saw, oh, John Leeson. <laughs> so we, we had a brief chat about this before we recorded Podcast Land. And I indicated that actually, whilst him voicing K9 is an important thing, especially in the context of a Doctor Who podcast, I was gobsmacked to know that he was also Bungle in Rainbow. Of course. Which, <laughs> which if you were a British child who was growing up anywhere from the 70s to the early 90s you knew a rainbow and you knew bungle and oh my god my brain is blown <laughs> <laughs> the same voice i had no idea that canine was bungle so was that a cartoon or? no one of the characters was a puppet and bungle was actually a full-grown man in a costume but interestingly he is just credited as the voice of bungle so someone else was in the costume i guess oh so he, he was james earl jones bungle's darth vader <laughs> apparently <laughs> There is a brilliant, I don't know if it's actually like played straight to camera, of uh, adultish spin-off where it's all just innuendo with them playing with their twangers. <laughs> <laughs> twangers were a, a little musical instrument, but yeah, you get the innuendo. <laughs> I'll watch it. <laughs> it's worth a watch. Like, it, it might be lost a little bit of context, but um, it's still entertaining. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yes, so we don't get a canine. We don't get a canine, no. We do get John Leeson. But Romana is on set. Romana is part of this serial. But I also feel like we get very little Romana in this. She doesn't yeah. do much. No, I, I would go along with that as well. I think we get an extraordinary amount of the three humans... And they are actually humans, aren't they, this time around? Yeah. I, I believe. This is this is a human colony on the third moon of Delta Magna. Yeah, that's they, right. They, they presumably colonized Delta Magna already and are going to the moon. I, I'm not sure if that's quite true, but it's yeah. implied. They talk about Mother Earth on a few occasions. Almost yeah. as though that's something so distant, as in in the so distant past, that they are not even really aware of it. Like, it, it talking about the children of Earth is, it, it's almost mythical, in a sense. So I have a feeling that these people, they actually live on Delta Magna, and then they just go to these various, well, this moon and various other worlds to then 
harvest them for resources. But it's not entirely clear to me where the swampies fit in. Based on what we get in the episode, it's probably safe-ish to say, yeah, they were the native species on Delta Magna. Humans came, kicked them off, put them on the moon. Put them on the moon, which seems... Like, I don't really get that. I, I think there are there are a few things here that just don't really work for me timeline-wise. But okay, so wait, hang on. Let, let's clarify that then. So they are from Delta Minor. Humans show up on Delta Minor ages ago. They go, we don't want to kill these people. We'll subjugate them. And we'll put a tribe of them on this moon. And the rest are going to be our servants, effectively. Because they do have swampy servants. Well, this, this is one of my big questions, is... I mean, they're called it, swampies, but... The swamp is on the moon where they're not from. That's very true, actually. Right? Oh, that's a big plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, if it's going to be like a, a time span thing. Like they, they've forgotten their history a bit. Like it's been warped. Doc okay. reads a book. Doc reads one book and suddenly knows more about the history than yeah, most of the Yeah, we're going to have to talk about the <laughs> scene with the book. I want to talk about their religion, and I want to talk about the role of religion in general, and I think that slightly overlaps with how long a time they can have spent on either one of these worlds. Okay. And the reason for that is they have not seen their god, Kroll, for centuries, right? Mm-hmm. He's been gone for centuries. So that means that they must have formed this religion before he suddenly disappeared for a few centuries. So that means that they've at least been on this moon for many, many centuries more, right? Yes, because this... Well, and if this they're from ref- a different planet, then why would they worship something that they may not even ever have seen but have, or, or couldn't even have heard of because they're clearly not capable of space travel, so they wouldn't know what's happening on, like, on this moon? I took it as that there's more time passed here than we can really accept, in a way. Like, there... This is because this is referred to as the fourth manifestation of Kroll. Yes, and you're right that the the so-called swampies. I don't don't know if they get a legitimized noun for them. It, I don't think just, so. And swampy no. sounds really derogatory. Yeah. Um, so that's all we have to go on. But the uh, the non-human species. Yeah. Have been yeah in in the limits of that religion for. A very long time, multiple, multiple, multiple generations. But it must, that must have been on this moon, though. Yeah, there have been four manifestations of crawl. This, or this is the fourth. But I, I still feel like it's meant to have been enough time. Like you, we've already established, there is this cult-ish kind of order of the sons of Earth that are thinking people shouldn't have left Earth, but Earth is a bit of a myth. Like you know, this is centuries of colonization away from planet Earth. They've colonized Delta Magna, and then they've displaced the species that was on Delta Magnus for this moon and the centuries have passed again and things have just kind of like warped a bit and been lost to myth. And so even though it didn't originate on that planet, that moon rather, and they wouldn't have originally been swampies. They were called something else and now it's all right. Okay. So they have almost adopted part of the identity that's been imposed upon them by their colonizers. I mean, I think that's the only thing I can go on because because Kroll didn't exist on Delta Magna, I don't think. No, absolutely not. Implication that that was the case. So they have a, an entire religion based on an entity that lived on the moon. I'm sure there is a, a line or two saying they were displaced from Delta Magna, but maybe I missed something. No, um, I, I think you're right in saying that they've been dis- as in that there's a line about them being displaced. But I, I, I kind of felt like 
I mean, the whole thing is an avatar dances with wolves kind of situation, right? And someone's shown up on their land. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing is that no matter what the setup is, we we still have a, a kind of native tribe that have made that their, their habitat. That's true. And they've then been invaded again. But then, okay, so here's another weird thing about them. There are, like, maybe a dozen of them. Yeah, and no women. And no women. No, I mean, the only female character is Romana. Yep. In this entire serial. Yeah, there there are no women. I mean, the second I saw that there were green people, I was like, oh, please let there be women in this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure if, if the moment was when you saw there were green people. Was it not when you saw a green butt cheek? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it might have been. There are no women. Let's say there are 20 of them in yeah, total. I, uh, that's I not would a not civ- accept there's more than 20. <laughs> yeah, that's, a civilized, that's not a civilization. That's, I mean, it's, it barely qualifies as a tribe here. Yeah. And they've been around for how long? There's something that, that seems to me to work in favor of your original theory of these people, as in these 20 individuals, these 20 people, they were not originally from this moon. They were placed there. Because otherwise the, this place would be teeming with green dudes. But it doesn't fit with the centuries-old religion, though, does it? No, it doesn't either. Oh, they. Oh, see, you know, oh. I kind of, I kind of registered. I definitely registered that there were no women as part of that tribe. I, I, I didn't put my brain into the all one village per moon cycle. Oh, you know. By the way, I very easily solved this problem by looking it up, and you're right. Uh, oh, okay. They, they <laughs> are. <laughs> They are green-skinned humanoids from the planet Delta Magna. When humans colonized the planet, they forced the Swampies to move off-world to Delta 3, the moon. Or okay. a moon. Yeah, it, it doesn't explain why they couldn't have hired just two, three actresses. <laughs> <laughs> like, they, they don't have to be exploitative with it or anything. You know, just, just in the odd background. Yep. They, they can have, they don't have to be skimpily clad. I, you know, they, they, or they could be, be. or they could be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be that guy. I apologize. <laughs> I couldn't resist the joke. I'm sorry. It's, it's weird. Like you, if you make it more alien, then it doesn't matter. Like the genders don't exist or whatever, you know, that, that's yeah. the thing. But when you make them look so humanoid, you have to kind of address that. And they didn't bother. It's just like, no, there aren't that many of them. Oh, but oh, well, they've been worshipping this this god Kroll for centuries. Yeah, but that also, I, I don't like it. I don't like that they have, this is their god. And these people have never, ever seen Kroll because in their lifetime, Kroll has been asleep. But they still worship Kroll. They still sacrifice people to Kroll. They, they are torts malotes into crawl and then crawl shows up and people start doubting him it's like no <laughs> this should blow your green mind like this should absolutely it, it not a single one of those individuals should ever get off their knees at this point they should do nothing but worship crawl actually you know what i actually quite like that <laughs> really <laughs> yeah because it struck me that this was Actually, they weren't so sort of super obsessed with their god Kroll. It was there's a bit of ritual, a bit of spiritualism, but it was it's mainly their, their way of cheeks. life. Yeah, it's just they just liked dressing a certain way and doing certain things. I think the sacrifice they said they hadn't done for a very long time. I forget the time frame they say. It's like they're not in the habit of sacrificing people. Yeah, that's and true. They they obviously have these rituals to do with sacrificing. You know, there's some sh- shitty stuff about their religion, but it sounded like. They haven't done that shitty stuff for quite a while. 
Yeah, that's true. There's a fantastic bit when um, uh, what's her face Romana is about to be sacrificed, or uh, sorry, possibly when Romana has just been rescued by the Doctor mm. and Lightning Cheeks and the chap who's dressed up as Cthulhu, you know. Um, oh yeah. There, I mean, it turns out, oh, she's not being sacrificed because it wasn't actually Cthulhu. It was a dude with a mask. <laughs> it's it's all fake. Hey, uh, hey, it's more than a mask. It's a, it's a big fuck-off head. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> There's a conversation between Lightning Cheeks and that chap where Lightning Cheeks, who is the high priest and who talks to Kroll, and, I mean, he's like, it, he's not even a priest. He's like their pope. He is the one conduit to Kroll. Yeah. And... Even he is aware that the ceremony is all bogus, and even he is aware that it's sort of an opium for the people in the sense of, oh, they must never find out that this didn't work out because maybe there'll be panic or they'll they'll take that to be a bad omen. It's like, yeah, but, but it's fake to begin with. You're the one who orchestrated it, which yeah, I think which adds is... a new interesting dynamic to it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, I, I mean, I, I just to agree with you, really. But I, I think this is why I kind of like it. Like... I'm not a religious person. You're not a religious person. No. We we don't have the um the buffer there to kind of like stop us from maybe hurting people's feelings. And I don't want to like downplay things too much. But it seemed like it might have been a slight little digger, you know, kind of religion in general. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of okay with it. That <laughs> they're they're just sort of doing the motions, and then actually, if your god appears. And eats one of you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you go, oh, why the fuck have we been worshipping this guy again? But no one uh, does that. They absolutely do do that. Um, what's his name? Varlik. Varlik just, he does a complete 180 on his religion when he sees Mensch get eaten. For the, for the rest of the oh, serial. He, sorry, he, you are right. He, he is not really on board with worshipping Kroll anymore. He, he's like, okay. Lightning cheeks. I don't think you can talk to this guy. I don't think you can reason with it. He's a big fucking tentacle squid thing. <laughs> like he, is, is he's he... not. Yeah, he's not. He's not protecting us. He's just eating us. <laughs> is he the guy who says after? I can't remember his name, but the crocodile Dundee character, Steve Irving, when he, oh, when he goes, Rom does. Rom does. When one of the guns misfires. And Kroll has just made an appearance. Is the chap that you're talking about, is he the guy who goes, uh, no, we will not go and sacrifice something to Kroll or worship Kroll right away. We're going to go and find Steve Irving first. I don't know, actually. I, th I think it took me a while to pick up on characters in general in this serial, to be honest. I don't think I've got people's names down oh, as no notes for a very long time. And I had to go back and, and make a list of, of characters and just, so I've got like Rankin, Swampy Leader, Valak, Swampy who doesn't think Kroll is really worth <laughs> worshipping anymore. <laughs> Mensch. Like Mensch was the first person I wrote a name down for and he was just Swampy. <laughs> but turns out he's like the Swampy slate. Like, like what you were alluding to earlier, it seems there is a subjugation aspect. Yeah, to he's the guy who's seen swampy. in like the very first scene practically. He is inside the refinery. Yeah. And he travels with the life vests, with those guys, the humans. And there's, there's a big question there of... Because he eventually ends up being a sort of spy. Yeah. Um, but it's not really clear if he's been doing that a lot, if that's the first time he's done it. Or... like People weren't surprised that Mench had appeared. So I guess there was a kind of implication that he was working 
with the humans as a spy, but then why were the humans so accepting to have him as a servant? I don't know, it's a bit of a weird setup from the start, really. I, I think there's a massive parallel with Native Americans being displaced and some of them being recruited simply because they know the land or they're good trackers or they're, you know, they they have the skills to survive in this, this new place that the white invaders had no idea about. So they're recruited and... I don't, I, I don't know. I think I feel like there's a parallel to that in some way. I think you're probably right. That's, that's probably the intention. But then if you're doing that, maybe you need to have the character do more than serve tea or what? It, well, I can't remember actually what I mean, he does. At least he is a servant. But yeah. then he is also used for his tracking abilities. This is why the parallel is in my... I mean, I'm woefully poorly educated in, in the history department, but I'm, like, I'm making parallels in my head to like, the last of the Mohicans and old Shatterhand. And his main skill set is when he is being utilized as a spy or like as a tracker because they go out in a in a canoe with it. Oh, by the way, there are canoes, which also feels like another parallel to Native sure. Americans. And, and he jumps out of the canoe and starts tracking, starts like following the, um, the swampies who don't reside inside the refinery. I guess, yeah... I guess I didn't pick up on that as a massive part of it. Yeah, maybe it's my bad for not really noticing. It's, I think it's just the first thing we get, like, he is appearing as a servant. Yeah. I, I, I think that just, that just ultimately weighed above everything in my mind. It was just, it was more a reference to black people in Southern America, and it seemed less of a, using someone as a guide and a navigator and more of a pure dominating servantry thing. Yeah. And yeah, it just, I don't know. I mean, there's a fair amount of overlap in any two scenarios that involved severe racism. And it's possible that they're drawing inspiration from both of those, you know, historical contexts. True. I said, yeah, I, I felt like it missed the mark. I think that's, that's the thing that's, that's kind of bugging me is, is it didn't, it didn't make sense. Their, their racism was well placed, but their use of it <laughs> didn't make sense. <laughs> so what about the um, Steve Irvin guy? I mean, he's occasionally Steve Irvin, occasionally Crocodile Dundee, occasionally Alan Quatermain, in my notes. <laughs> he's, he's like this amalgamation of all of them, and I can't quite put my finger on him. He's not relying on the Swampies paying him for the guns. Has he actually been paid to deliver guns by the children of Earth? No, he's been paid by Thorn. By Thorn? Yeah. So that gets revealed... I missed that. Episode... Is it episode three? I forget. So what, wait, yes, why yeah, has Thorn done that? So Thorn wants an excuse to kill the Swampies. Ah, okay. That makes sense. And if sense. they're armed, it can be seen as self-defense. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I kind of remember this interlocution. Which is previously implied. I think I think we get the, the justification from Thorn before we get the revelation that yeah. he, actually, he actually supplied the arms. But yeah, I, I think in that sense, like there's, there's some good bits kind of weaving their way through the plot line of... That's set, an, up, yeah. set up and reveal and, you know, that kind of stuff. And That's an added element of complexity to this. Like it, it just adds another layer to it. I like that. That's good. That's very good. Yeah, but I think, you know, sticking on Rom Dutt, I, I think I just ultimately just feel he's a bit of a non-character. I don't know. I never quite really cared about him. Yeah, nor I. And it doesn't seem like any... <laughs> I mean, when he gets eaten by Cthulhu, Romana's reaction is just, oh, how horrible. And yeah. then she basically just shrugs. <laughs> and the doctor's just like, yeah, but I mean, I told him. 
Yeah, I told him not to move. Yeah, like, like, this serves is, him right. Yeah, this is the the grand farewell. No, <laughs> but I can't yeah. really put my finger on him. I don't know if I sympathize with him. I don't know if I feel that he is a rogue. If, as in, I mean, he's described as a rogue by Baker. He's an arms dealer. Like I don't. But his heart seems to be in the right place as far as the Swampies are concerned. I mean, he gives, well... he advises them not to attack. He advises them on uh, to say on strategy is maybe putting it a little bit, <laughs> making more of it than it really is. But I mean, he does say if you scatter, then they'll be able to pick you off the over there and over there. You need to like just regroup, take it easy for a moment. You know, dial it back, and then then we can move ahead, or you can move ahead. Yeah, that's true. And he I doesn't know, have I, to say that. But at the same time, I guess, I guess it's not his fight. But so my note is early on in episode two, he doesn't want to join this fight. But the Swampies, and I feel like there's a, there's a, a blanket apology for using the term Swampies, but we don't have anything else to go with. That's really. what they're called in this show, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the Swampies feel like he supplied them with guns. He's on their side. And they're trying to convince him to fight with them. They don't really ever convince him. I don't. I don't think he's ever seen holding a gun like fighting at their side. He's. he's no, he, with... even, he's he tells them outright, "I was not paid to fight." Yeah, but he, he's definitely. I think after he says that line, I think there's a moment of him like considering it, like, and I, I wondered if it was going to come back round, and you would see him like in the line with them, like all firing guns or something, which I don't think happens. I, unless I blinked and missed it, I don't think he actually. I don't think so. Up takes up arms to defend them but you're right he gives them advice he more i think more just to like avoid bloodshed in general like i think he understands thorn's mind he knows he's just going to obliterate the entire settlement he's not going to come in and just you know shoot them one-on-one -on -one. there are 12 of them like <laughs> <laughs> yeah and but there's three of the humans <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's also a whole moon like, do these does it matter if there are 12 people somewhere else on this moon i know just leave them be yeah leave them Th these white dudes are aboard a rig like a a, a a gas rig a refinery somewhere in the middle of an ocean like, like there is an ocean <laughs> <laughs> or, or or a sea or whatever. I mean, there's a large body of water. Who? They're not going to set up camp in a swamp. Who cares about these people? This just strikes me as the uh, the ultimate kind of bigwigs creating a class war amongst people that perfectly perfectly okay living separately, but Absolutely. you turn them, turn them against each other just <laughs> just so they forget about how screwed they really are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all referencing anything in uh, politics today. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. They they are on a rig, which we we never get any indication that they have a legitimate need to go to the swampland. Like they they presumably get shuttled in and out of that that rig. They do what they need to do. Yeah, they via fire rockets, their rockets presumably. off. Yeah, they yeah. fire their rockets off to get the material back. They have a shuttle land and pick them up. Yeah. yeah, leave the swampies alone. Like, why do they sake. even have canoes? It, that seems really odd to me. They have a. We get to see a hovercraft in the opening scenes, and oh, we do, which we're... is lovely. Like we haven't seen a hovercraft in ages. It's nice to have a hovercraft. It's like classic seventies sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> get a hovercraft in here, please. Then all of a sudden that disappears, and they're like 
paddling. <laughs> Stop paddling. Did you only rent it for a day? Like the humans always use the hovercraft, don't they? Do they so really? I'm. I don't think they do. I feel like there's a. I mean, first off, the doctor steals a canoe from the refinery and paddles into the swamp with it. Oh, they have a canoe, yes, but when they're jaunting around, when Thorn and Co are jaunting around. They just use the hovercraft, I believe. Do they? I feel I like know. we only get this here once. I thought it was twice. I thought there was one time without Mensch and one time with Mensch. Oh, okay. But I, I, I forget. I like that his oh. name is Mensch, by the way. <laughs> a human in German and B, a good person in Yiddish. So, so, oh, really? Yeah. He's a Mensch. Yeah. I'm assuming the emphasis is on him being human because they're being treated inhumanely by the human colonizers. It's a nice hovercraft. Again, though, I feel like <laughs> the sound effect for it really hurt my ears. Oh, really? I don't remember it. It was, I don't know, just something has happened in the last couple of serials where they, they feel like we need to sci-fi this up a bit and they've just made a really whiny sound for shit. And it, it's like if you have your vol- <laughs> volume too high, it's, it's like when they play alarms in TV or films and it just goes on that little bit too long and you're just, you, maybe you're watching it late at night and you're just like, no, this this is just like annoying for my neighbours now. Like, <laughs> someone turn that alarm off. Like, de- Detective Blueface, you know, turn this alarm off. I don't remember what that particular thing sounded like. I, I, I don't think I made a note of sound design in this at all, except that I, I think the sound of Kroll is a little underwhelming. Like when giant Kroll shows up, it's just like, oh, it's a bit of a gurgle. But yeah, you know, I can't even think what noise it made. Exactly. Because I don't think that they've added a noise. And this is enormous. Kroll is gigantic. By the way, Kroll is hitherto, as in in Classic Who, the largest creature to have appeared in a serial. This is the they have like, hey, go big or go home. You know, (laughs) so they've really ramped up the alien squid monster. But it is dead silent. And there's not even sound as it... there should be a tidal wave when this thing appears. Yeah. Or at the very least, we should hear it. Like there should there should be tremors and so on and so forth. But but there's nothing. And if you compare it to, do you remember Seeds of Doom uh, with the gigantic? Um, I do. Yes. Oh, what's it called again? Oh, crinoids. There we go. See, crinoid. And that's yes. thanks to the Vindex. What a what an invention that is. What an amazing tool. Yeah. <laughs> in in one sip of a beer, podcast land, you can be there. <laughs> That's right. But do you remember when the when the crinoid was enormous and it was like yeah, it had engulfed it the entire mansion? The noise that it emanated was tremendous. Yeah. None of that here. No. I th- I think that's that's why I I feel slightly disappointed with this serial is I I had clicked on the Wikipedia page before yeah. watching this. I I knew what I was in for. I knew I was in for another Cthulhu like thing. Okay. And yeah, every time it appeared, I felt a little bit let down. I'm sorry, man. Yeah, like I, d- I do have a note saying like it's it's a nice like miniature effect when it attacks the. Oh, the, the miniature is beautiful. But then I have a question after it. You know, it's just or is it? I don't know. Then <laughs> then you see just like really rubbery tentacles like <gasps> up upright in the air. There's, there's no kind of fluidity to it, and it's. Oh, just... I love the tentacles. I think these are some of the best tentacles we've had. Like it, it's. No, I think the this one might be number yeah. one, and number two would be the tentacle thing that shows up and and like tries to make love to Pertwee in uh, the Auton one. Is it Terror of the Autons? It might be Terror of the Autons. I can't remember now. 
But like for no reason, there's a tentacle monster uh, in a box, and he just <laughs> like starts making out with it. It's fantastic. But like that's maybe the second best. These are hundred percent the best tentacles. These Dude, are great the tentacle ten- that comes out of the pipe. Yeah, no, no, that's what I'm talking about. Those, those are awesome. The ones that attack people, and we see them life size compared to a person. Yeah, those are really good. Yes, every, definitely. Every shot of that is done quite well. It's the miniature with its big tentacles. Oh yeah, like it, its arms, and they. They're just like inflated balloons just kind of <laughs> flopping around vertically at one point and then they they crash down over the top of it and don't really bend around properly. And they you know? clearly have no mass, like there's no weight behind yeah, exactly. it because otherwise that refinery would be no more. But there's, I don't really understand. It seems as though it has tentacles like a squid, but all the little things that come and plop in through the pipes or that drag Crocodile Dundee away and, and you know, those ones, they're more like tendrils. I mean, considering how huge Crawl yeah. is, it would be the equivalent of if we had, in addition to our fingers and our hands and arms, we also had, like, spaghetti-thin tendrils that could grasp people and pull them in. Exactly. I, I was more thinking of when you... Have you ever seen that thing they do um, when it's, like, a fractal hand and there's, there's another hand at the end of oh, your, it's, oh, yeah, each yes, finger? Oh, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you're absolutely right, the scale of it. The things we see flaying around as the model are not the things that are attacking people. Absolutely not. And so it it would seem as though it's burrowed through the entire moon, like a root system almost, because how else are these little tendrils moving around the place? How can they, how can it know where everyone is? How can it sense vibrations on land? (laughs) It lives under the ocean. True. It does move around, though. It moves around the, the kind of mud layer under the water, I think, is oh, okay. but just then, a reference. Okay, but I feel <laughs> like we should have a tsunami if that's the case. This enormous thing that's the size of multiple buildings is traveling underneath a layer of quite mud possibly. that people are standing on. <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly. I like the tremors element, though. The, Ooh, the bit of, I, like, oh, it, it senses vibrations, like, don't move. I'm glad you mentioned Tremors. Very good. Oh, I, I do like a bit of Tremors. Tremors is I, great. I'm, I need to rewatch that. I feel like it's my level of uh, suspense and horror. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> not a massive horror fan, but I can cope with that. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, tangent, do you like Slither? What's Slither? Slither from 2006 um, by James Gunn, starring Nathan Fillion. Nathan Fillion? Yeah, Nathan what? Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, and Michael Rooker. That looks... Like a terrible poster. It's so freaking good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, total tangent, but I feel like if you like Tremor, you'll, you'll like Slither as well. Uh, back to this show, though. Yeah, back to this show. So <laughs> the other aspect of it moving around underground, though, is we get dude who we've already talked about, who I've forgotten his name already, Dagin. Dagin. Oh, is that Discount Mark Hamill, a.k.a. John Leeson? That, that is, I believe. Okay. I think that's the right character, isn't it? Dagin is, is John Leeson? Um, yeah, yeah, he is. He's the yeah, guy who gets cool. shot. Yes, but he, he is our scanner operator, as I have noted him. Okay. So he's the one that stares at the, the amazing visual effects. <laughs> they are pretty good, you know. Well, this, this is my... Point and question. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, are, are they good for the time? Because they spend a lot of shots showing us these screens. They are freaking proud of that. 
I, I feel like in the beginning, the first time that we get to see it, or the first segment in which it is so prominently presented on screen, it looked mega naff and made no sense whatsoever. And they're just staring at this flimmery screen and there's nothing to glean from it. But then the second or third time, it actually has started to take the shape of tentacles. And that blew my mind. I think, yeah, once you start seeing the shape of crow on it, yeah, it starts being worthwhile. Ish, I don't know. Ish, I, I, I found it. I, I found it very interesting. <laughs> like, just those scenes in particular as a whole. The the amount of time they show those scanner screens. Yeah, and the, the amount of dialogue given to the generally it was the three humans sat around it, who are I think I think the majority of the time Thorn, Fenir, and yep. Dugin. Yes. Um, who actually individually, I I, I kind of liked all those three characters. They're like, fantastic. Yeah, and they have amazing interplay, and I think that dialogue is incredibly well written most of the time. Um, it took me a while to kind of like tune into what was what was happening a lot of the time and, and digest it all. My notes are terrible because I just kind of like was just listening to it and just like, oh right, okay, all this has happened, um, and not really noting down any interesting dialogue or anything. But yeah, I don't know. It's I just found it like. Is this a script that someone wanted to get a lot of dialogue out? Or is this a script I, this that... This was written by Robert Holmes. As, as so you... we were discussing before pressing record, this is a Robert Holmes script. We established beforehand that this is someone who, since I've joined the classic, who, like, he has done a ridiculous number of the serials. Yeah, and um, really good ones. Which obviously must... must vary a bit but i I think maybe he is more dialogue heavy i'm not quite sure but but putting that dialogue heaviness with then showing all the scanner stuff i don't know i found it a bit of a kind of chicken and egg thing is like did someone go we've got this amazing scanner effect let's have loads of scenes where we're talking about this amazing scanner effect i think there's an among my notes i've pointed out that in episodes two and three and i'm assuming four as well but i didn't make an observation of it the previously on doctor who is crazy long it's yes. super duper long. And in the trivia on uh, Todd's Wikia, this was corroborated and it was said that this is one of the shortest serials in Doctor Who. The whole thing is 90 minutes. And it's partly shortened by the fact that these previously on segments are super long. But I think that element also carries forth into the middle of episodes. So you have these lengthy scenes that surround one monitor, or sorry, two identical monitors next to yeah. each other that they're staring at. And that's just to fill time. You have that incredibly long swampy aerobics class scene where they're <laughs> like preparing to sacrifice Romana and they're just doing like bicycle kicks. And it's just like, oh, d- dudes, please, come on. We've watched this wait, for wait. five minutes and I'm going to actually oh, okay. shoot myself in the face now. Wait, no, we have to linger here or at, okay. least, or at least spin back to it. Like if you want to carry on your thread, okay, that's let, fine. Okay, let's put a pin on that. Let's put a pin okay. on that. But okay. I, think, I think that's why we get some of these shots. I don't think that that monitor was necessarily worth it in the beginning but i think there just wasn't enough script and something that i did read same bit of trivia was that robert holmes wanted to make this more comedic and the bbc 
higher-uppers told him to dial that back. They wanted it to be more serious because the recent episodes had been very comedic. Like, there was too much slapstick and there were too many jokes. So, yeah, take stuff out of it. And maybe that's why we suddenly have dead air. Like, maybe there were lots of fun dialogues, Robert Holmes dialogues, that just had to get cut. Interesting. There are still some zingers in this, by the way. There are, but it just made me think, actually. Like, not only is this um, maybe a bit romana light. Like, is it yes. a bit Doctor light in a way? I don't know. Oh. Like, like it is obviously present through it all, but is it is it missing that little bit of uh, kind of Doctor flair? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, know. I see what do you're you, saying. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Do, do you want to carry on a thread or should no, we No, should we go to aerobics class? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> because that was incredible. Like... That's one way of putting it. I, I kind of <laughs> kind of finished episode one on a bit of a high because it was just so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> like when I get to write notes of crow, 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 it's not a bad beat, but uh, I need to work on the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> or, ah, the jog on the spot dance move. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm very happy if, if those are my notes. Like I don't get to have fun with notes very often because things are moving too quickly. <laughs> Oh, very pleased for you. <laughs> but yeah, it is a ridiculous scene. It's so long. But it's something that that also exemplifies, though, is set dressing. Because it, that scene has scope, like scale. It's it, They've put up this sort of wall with a gate in the middle, which they, they, they tie up Romana on the other side of the wall. They close the gate super dramatically. It's like a... <laughs> it closes, and, and they're doing the dance. Like it, it feels like they've really invested in set dressing and in decor, and it's great. And this is one of many... Not many, that's an exaggeration. This is one of... Three <laughs> sets that I have pointed out as like, whoa, that is some nice stuff. <laughs> you know, well I'm, done. I'm trying to, yeah, no, I'm trying to think to that because is that actually a set? Is that on location? Is, did oh, they do maybe, that in the swamp or is that in Wait, I take it back. Maybe it's on location. But the, but even if that's the case, then at least, I mean, they're dressing the location. That wall, no, it's not a wall, whatever it is. It's like... It's a fence. Made, yeah, it's made of straw, effectively, and it's, yeah. but but it's still. I mean, it, it's sizable. It's been made for purpose, and it has a gate in the middle of it. It's quite impressive, I thought. And it comes back as well when when Kroll comes and is kind of attacking the entire settlement. Oh, there his, you go. His tentacles go through through those the yes, exactly, fences, which looks yeah. badass. <laughs> I had highlighted that one, the sacrifice room, and although I, I mentioned this in a slightly different context, but there is the, I think it's referred to as the main pipeline. In particular, there's a scene of one of the humans, like, basically checking the oil. So he's he's oh, next yeah. to this giant pipeline, and he pulls out a, a stick, like an oil measuring stick, checks it, and, and then puts it back in again. It's like, you, that's, that's gorgeous. That's, I feel like I'm in a refinery. And especially okay. <laughs> when that breaks open and the tentacle comes out through the... Oh, so freaking creepy to imagine the people who got 
pulled in to the it's not an oil thing i mean it's meant not to be an oil thing Methane thing. Yeah, yeah they're pulled into this pipe they're alive while they're being dragged through the pipe until presumably it hits a curve and they're being like broken and bent and stuff oh god it's freaking vicious this is more violent than stuff that we've had in the past by the way this is so violent that there is blood there's yeah it, which we have not had for a long time i, I think we we have had it like semi-recently but yeah because when thorn gets killed yeah holy shit spear to the gut yeah and very little commentary as far as i recall none ar- around it it's just like okay that's thorn dead okay yeah <laughs> I, I think that's across the board the only person who actually gets some commentary is uh when k9 gets shot as in yeah. mark hamill mark hamill gets shot and uh, when we get to see uh what's his face what's his face the guy who shot him thorn. thorn thorn we get to see thorn drag his lifeless body across their like office <laughs> We get a moment of the Doctor going, oh, well, that was unnecessary. Right. I don't know. This, I think, actually is one of my biggest plus plus points for the entire serial yeah. is the ha- handling of that. Like, Fenir as a character I, I, is... So he's he's the third one, which I, I never quite understood what his role was. No idea. Like, it was very obvious that Thorne was in charge. Yeah. He was calling the shots. Other dude, Bungle. Um <laughs> whose name I've forgotten, Mark was very Hamill. much the the scanner operator. He understood all that shit. Like He's also when... the youngest. Oh, really? Okay. I think so. Yeah, to, to the point where someone else was on shift and things weren't working. And oh, he, he yeah. Was, he was having a kip and they had to wake him up and it's like... He comes in and he's like putting his belt stuff's on. Stuff's not working. Yeah, with the lovely detail. Yeah, it's really nice. Know? I think and there's then... an element of like... Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. So Fenner, you're not quite sure really how he fits into everything like he's been this kind of like voice on the shoulder through a lot of it of just kind of oh yeah that what the doctors just told us about our machinery is incredible like he's he's obviously intelligent you know he's been that kind of yeah. sage sage voice in the corner for a while but then yeah when thorn kills bungle he's just he his character just kind of well, he takes a like, stand he calls it murder yeah like cool. just just really comes into his own and i thought that was incredible actually just like just the tension in there is like well thorn's killed someone already he's obviously unhinged you know we we understand what that kind of character is you know it's it's not maybe not that realistic but you you get worried for anyone who's gonna pull him up on stuff absolutely and he stand yeah he stands up to him and and says like no you murdered him like i am not letting that slide like okay i'm not going to attack you or anything but i'm not going to let that you know go unchecked i'm not going to let you get away with it and yeah exactly yeah, it's, no, it's a very interesting and powerful I mean, when the doctor comes in and he's and the doctor says well oh that was unnecessary or that was uncalled for something to that effect looking at john leeson dugin mark hamill's body uh whatever his other faces <laughs> seriously i cannot remember anyone's name the other guy goes yeah it wasn't my idea yeah yeah it's, he's he's very good he's absolutely brilliant i feel like there's an element of it's almost like a battalion and they've gone into let's say native american land or, or what have you wherever it is uh, and they're led by this old school super racist colonel that's uh what's his face and then there's the soldier who's been around for a while and he's starting to get disillusioned by the whole situation. That's your buddy. And then there's the young recruit who is K9, John Leeson, Mark Hamill. This is not rendered any clearer by the fact that I don't remember anyone's name. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
but but I feel like you have that distinction. And when the young guy, the young recruit, gets shot, that's when the dude who's in the middle, he's immediately going to start wavering. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's 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 not a particularly unique thing at all, but. I, f- I felt like it was a unique thing in Doctor Who. I, it like, is. I, I think yeah. you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I, I found that particularly powerful, I, I have to say. I think especially given, like, we've got a giant tentacle monster. And yeah. <laughs> and then this is going on at the same time. <laughs> green painted people, you know. And uh, the actor that plays Thorn, like, oh. he pro- he properly looks evil. He has the looks, the cheekbones, and the mustache of someone who could very clearly don a red coat. Like he could be an old soldier. Like I can see him as one super bad guy in like a Flashman novel or something. You could see Mr. Neil McCarthy. Mainly because of his his tash, it looks like he has and his hairstyle. He looks like he has been made up slightly anachronistically. Okay. I feel like he just, I don't know. He has a very gaunt-looking face, doesn't he? A very, very cheek-heavy, cheekbone-heavy. Certainly. I'm trying to find a picture of him now. He definitely, he looks like a commander, doesn't he? Like he oh, very much so. He's not someone as a subordinate. <laughs> no. <laughs> he's, uh, he's got, well, or rather, I should say he had. He, he unfortunately died in 1985, a rather young age of 52. Oh, um, my goodness. Wait, 52? Yeah. Wait, how old was he in this? Are we, where are we now? Are we, are we in 78 now? So up. he was only 45, I guess. I'm sure we've had this conversation on Who Back When before, but back in the 70s, wowee, people looked slightly older than they do now. I would have pegged this guy for late 50s. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm more attuned to, uh, the, we're, we're in the 70s. I, I, 78 to 79. Yeah. Yeah, 13th of Jan, 79, is when the final part aired. Oh, wow. Uh, did you recognize the other guy? Um, what was his name again? Fenner? Fem- Fema? I was getting vague vibes about him. I did not peg where I knew him from. So we, ha- ha- we have Sorry. encountered him before. Yes, uh, I, I believe that is. Where, where, where did we see him before, uh, Mr. Leon? Well, he played Mahandri Solon, a.k.a. Frankenstein, in The Brain of Morbius. I'm just going to have to quickly look him up. Solon, Brain of Morbius. Oh, yes, the Garth Marenghi alike. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> or rather, not Garth Marenghi. Uh, the other guy that's in it. The Matt Berry character. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Lucian Sanchez? Something like that? I, oh, I don't you know. know what? There's so many tangents. It's but, a yeah, lot anyway. of times. So <laughs> People out there in podcast land, if you do not know Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, though, and you have a warped sense of everything... <laughs> Have a look. Oh, absolutely. It is so bloody good. <laughs> Lucien Sanchez. I just looked it up. It is. Very good. Dr. Lucien Sanchez. Okay. I, I'm still a bit all over the place, just to be honest. I'm, I'm not settling anything in my mind as to how to rate this serial. I have not written a number down in Nor I. Nor I. Uh, I have a feeling so that it's going to be a much higher rating than I anticipated before I pressing really play on it. Interesting. Yeah. So I, okay, maybe I can throw a random negative and see how it sits then. Cause oh, yes, please, bring me back slight, to the earth. A slightly minor thing, but this is very much towards the end of episode four, like, well, the okay. latter half of episode four. Maybe feeding into the how underused and kind of badly used even Romana is. So Kroll is attacking the facility and Romana just wanders off. 
and very nearly gets grabbed by a tentacle. Yeah, she's just sort of bumbling around, and the only other time before then that we get to see her do anything, she I sorry, she only gets two other actions in this entire serial in one she loses the um, detector the key to time detector and in the second one she gets imprisoned and is basically just a damsel in distress who needs to get rescued by the doctor that's very true a little step back here really is you were doing so well bbc (laughs) (laughs) no this is not a good romana story yeah it's very romana a good feminist story this is not a good i don't know what story yeah i agree with you yeah, there are some definite problems. Okay, well, I'll see your negative and I'll I'll raise you a shit ton of positives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so it, it, uh, just a few random, a random assortment of observations that really tickled me. The doctor checking the gravity in the very beginning in part one, sticking a finger in the air and realizing that, mm, oh, yeah, must be the third moon of Delta Magna. <laughs> it felt very Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi. As in, rather the other way around, obviously. But that's the same kernel of the Doctor shining through. Yeah. Nice observation. Because they'll both, they'll jump around. Uh, Capaldi has the yo-yo occasionally. You know, those things. And Matt Smith also checked the air, I'm pretty sure, and went, hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be London or wherever it is he is at the time. Someone does a lot of licking of things. I forget who that is. That must be Matt Smith, surely. Matt Smith, yeah. Must be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you you, I mean, you, that guy's great, but I don't think he washes his hands nearly often enough. <laughs> I was thinking, you'd only get someone that young to abuse their body that way. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> True. Okay. All right. Other lovely bits. Why don't you introduce me, but don't exaggerate? And Romana just goes, oh, this is. They're immediately captured, and Doc just goes, I told you not to exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> There's something good in here. Yeah. Um, I have a very random note. Okay. Have you watched The Mandalorian? Yes. Is the Doc playing a song very much like the theme to The Mandalorian? <laughs> That's like Wait, when? I don't remember on, playing Early on in episode one, he's, he's playing a little flute-like oh, instrument. Oh, yeah, he fashions a flute. I remember him doing that, but I don't remember what he plays. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually go back and kind of like listen to it properly, but my note at the time was like, that, you know, it's, it's quite similar to The Mandalorian ah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Reverse copyright infringement. It, exactly. <laughs> Shortly after that, he's got captured or something. He's, will there be strawberry jam for tea? Oh, yes. Very nice. Oh, here's a question. Okay. struck me early on was, does the doc have medals on his coat? And then my immediate answer was no, (laughs) because they're birds. He's got little bird pins on his lapels. What? Yeah. Really? For a start, I don't recall his having like very obvious lapels before. No, nor, nor I. Okay, I can't find it. Oh, here we go. Yes, I have a picture. Holy moly, yeah, you're right. They are birds. He's got a... There's like a flock of them. Yeah, it's like one on one side and three on another or something like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is quite something. Oh, um, wow. I, I failed to find that actual image, but I, I wonder if it's become kind of become a recurring thing with different pins. But yeah, I don't remember seeing his, his lapels, the inside of a lapel exposed like that before. Maybe it's just because they hadn't adorned it. I don't know. I, I thought know. that was an interesting detail. Yeah, that's really, really fun. That's very fun. Way better than a stick of celery. <laughs> so we spoke about this off air, I believe. Yeah. But on air, how did you feel about the doc? screaming to break the glass 
I mean, I'm I'm not okay with the Doctor suddenly being an X-Man. I think, given that he never does this again, as far as I'm aware, never does this again. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> Just don't do it. Too much. I think if there had been an attempt to make it sound like Tom Baker making a sound, but it was it was so artificial. Like, it, it didn't even sound like a voice to me. I don't know. It was just a noise. Yeah, that's true. But the fact that he can do it to begin with... Well, I don't... Because our discussion off-air was the reference to... Um, Nellie Melba. Nellie Melba, who was a real opera singer. Yeah. And we, we haven't looked into the detail podcast on, but we can but assume she was someone that could break glass by hitting a certain pitch or potentially claimed to be <laughs> or, or claimed to yeah, uh, yeah. But, or maybe that's a nice pr gimmick yeah. <laughs> I, I mean i'm pretty sure this ability exists like you can hit the right resonance and uh yeah glass can be shattered with a voice like it's a very high pitch as far as i understand but you know i don't know maybe i've been lied to by a lot of other tv shows who knows uh, i've just googled nelly melba glass and the only I'm, I'm not finding anything like that i don't think there's a story about her having done this in fact you're saying only... robert holmes lied to us yes uh, I, I think this is just like a I think it's a fun thing about an actual real person who had was famed for her voice but that's that's not my problem with this my problem with this is that the doctor can shatter glass with his voice how, so- how many times has he been locked in a glass cage and not been a- tenant's death could have been avoided <laughs> he just had to sing at the glass cage in which he found himself and both he and Wilf could have walked away that's a fair point i don't know i guess we're getting into the realms of how much carries through each regeneration like is this just a tom baker doctor trait oh i guess that's an argument to be made sure but i think i think you're right though this isn't a tom baker trait this is uh this serial trait (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly which is yeah that that is annoying i I think that's just adding too much oh sorry go ahead I'll say my note is, what the fuck? <laughs> Dog screaming <laughs> to break the glass. <laughs> I feel about that happening the exact same way that I feel about the 13th Doctor suddenly switching franchise and doing a Vulcan mind meld with someone. It's like, no, you should not be able to do this. If you could do this, why would you not always do this? And, yeah. <laughs> and I don't want you to have too many powers. I want the Doctor to be helpless in certain situations and have to just be clever, not have a superpower. Just a tangent on this bit, I... I totally agree with you. I would rather the Doctor was clever. Mm-hmm. Not to the point where, to use Drew's phrase, just to do a clever. You know, just <laughs> just be clever about stuff. But I don't, I don't mind the, the idea that there are things that the doc, Doctor can do that we can't do. Sure. I would rather that I understood that and knew it, though. So the, the, the continual kind of, well, the Doctor's lived for hundreds, if not in you who thousands of years and we don't know Gallifreyan society we don't know Gallifreyan ability and all this kind of stuff and so they just feel like they can just throw in a new thing it's like oh yeah the doctor is able to break glass with his voice didn't you know that yeah. it's like <laughs> all Gallifreyans never... can do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't you what <laughs> I thought we were so similar to humans what? <laughs> yeah so it, it's it's always that it's always a, a surprise thing it's never a doc has learned an ability and he explains it after the fact or before the fact. It's it's just like a, a thing that's just pulled out of a, a magic hat of like, oh yeah, the doctor can do this. Didn't you realize that? You know, we've we've just we've just shifted the goalposts. It's fine, <laughs> but it's not fine. <laughs>
<laughs> Rant over. <laughs> uh, you are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I do have note-wise for this serial is... Cliffhangers. Well, I do have cliffhangers. <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry. Of course I have cliffhangers. <laughs> sorry, I was just... Uh... <laughs> he says, adjusting the glasses on his face. <laughs> What were you going to say, though? I picked up on a couple of line fluffs, which got, got through the edit. I don't actually have a note at the lines that were fluffed. One is from Romana, I think. One is from Romana. Yeah. Just trying to find out. I think it was in the second episode. Yeah. Early on in the second episode, I have Romana line fluff. And then Thorn makes a line fluff towards the end of episode three as well. Which is interesting, given that there's not a lot of substance to this like they they had to fill out the time by replaying the last minute and a half of the previous episode but obviously during filming they didn't have enough time to reshoot those scenes or they've just slipped under radar i don't know yeah or they didn't care maybe i I don't know i mean a certain degree of line fluffery is oh i don't know if this is entirely wrong to say it's kind of welcome i feel because we fluff ad hoc dialogue Every now and then, I catch myself saying something incorrectly, and then I have to correct myself, and and the conversation carries on. That's natural. It is natural. It's not natural for television and film. That's true. That is true. That's that's the problem. Like, if there became a movement where things were shot and they spoke like we are speaking on this podcast, like we edit this podcast before it gets broadcast, but we still we leave in a lot of the backtracking and umming and that like we don't erase everything. But exactly, it would seem unnatural. I think the conversation would sound super duper unnatural if we didn't leave in at least some of them. Yeah, but we're not scripted. No, that's true. But maybe maybe that's still something that is taken into consideration by the BBC. Maybe they're going. I mean, we have two takes and they're both virtually identical except in one the chap who plays Thorn stutters or he he fluffs a line and then he or like a word and he says it over again yeah which I think is I think it's the case for both of them I think they they start saying the wrong word and then restart the sentence sort of thing but it, it, it's so quick yeah um, that it's yeah it's it's an incredibly minor point but I just find it interesting that I, I picked up on two in this <laughs> serial. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I don't think I've picked up on a fluff since the spider thing from many, many, many serials oh, ago. Oh, I don't even remember that fluff. Where there, there was just the worst actress they ever commissioned, like the old old woman in a tribe <gasps> or something. Yes. That, that just, <laughs> just verbal diarrhea onto the set. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that entire tribe. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah, and I think I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just wasn't as swept up in the story. I'm not quite sure. But you know, the fact that I, I noted it twice during one serial, I thought was was interesting. Like I don't know if it says something about the production. Hey, yeah, possibly. On the note of production, I've glanced at my notes and I've found there's actually a fourth set that I've highlighted as well, and that is okay. the Moonraker set. When when the Doctor climbs up underneath the rockets, we get to see the the rocket boosters, the booster rockets. Oh yeah, he climbs up and starts tinkering with wires. Very nicely done. As much energy as was omitted from getting the dialogue perfectly 
right in every take, as much energy, if not more, was put into sets. With a couple of a few examples. Sorry, see now I'm fluffing lines. A few few exceptions, though. I mean, there are a lot of computer panels that feel like, but that's just uh, that's just a plate that you've put on a table. (laughs) Like that's not an actual (laughs) panel. (laughs) In one case, it's even like bent upwards a little bit, so you can see that it's just been plonked on a surface. You're you're an idiot. But (laughs) but that rocket is gorgeous. It is actually. you're right. I didn't. I didn't pay that enough attention because it's it's used for just that one scene, which yeah. is ba- barely a scene. But they built it for that one scene. Yeah, like time I, and I, money went into this. I sort of hope not. I hope they reuse that from something. Oh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I know that some of the sets are reused for the caves of Androzani, which is also a Robert Holmes one. Uh, and also a legendary Andrazani. one. Androzani. Yes, that's right. Oh, so many of those. That's good. <laughs> Kizu Androzani, I believe, is the last uh, Peter Davison one. Uh. How do you feel about the end? The very end. Well, not the very end. There very are very end. Not the very end. There's kind of a few endings. Aren't yeah, there? that's true. Well, I was, I was, I was going to ask specifically about well, how you feel about Doc and Romana just sort of leaving the brain of Morbius chap to be tortured and or cannibalized by the Swampies and just like going, have a nice day. <laughs> Give them a new religion. <laughs> yeah. Which makes no I, sense. Like my emoji next to that is a smiley face. Because okay. I was just, I was just like, <laughs> what? Okay. Doc's just leaving him. Like the way Doc says it to Fenner, it's, it's kind of okay. But then the way the Swampies react to it and are basically kind of like in- surrounding him, him. they're yeah, yeah, clearly sorry. going to murder him, a hundred percent, or at very least beat the shit out of him. Oh yeah, and, and then go, <laughs> okay, like we're not going to kill you. Just tell us what the fuck just happened. <laughs> <laughs> and what is this place anyway? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who who was that doctor guy? <laughs> Yeah, the doctor guy who just killed our god, but we're <laughs> yeah. okay with it. <laughs> he didn't just no. Our doctor guy that turned our god into a rock and walked off with him. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, hang on. What was the dealio with with the key to time segment? At a certain point, the key to time was placed on this planet as a religious relic of sorts, and it was used by uh, a priest. And then the priest, along with this relic, was eaten by Kroll. Yeah, I think so. And consequently, this religious relic, which which actually had, quote, magical powers because it was a key to time segment, suddenly got fused with Kroll and Kroll got these powers? I don't know. I feel like that's a bit of a easy way out of the situation because if the piece of the key to time was inside crawl that would be a very different story yeah i mean we don't get a scene of the doctor being ingested and like climbing through or like (laughs) climbing up crawl's colon (laughs) (laughs) finding this this key to time segment so no just a skull no (laughs) just another rock just a skull oh man it really smells in here lie down have a nap wake up have a wank look for further find the thing finally like he touches crawl with his detector thing and all of crawl turns into a key to time segment so there's a disconnect there for me as well i'm not sure there is a big disconnect and the preceding scene where the doc gets attacked by crawl yeah is bollocks because <laughs> you have to accept that doc 
knows that Kroll is the key to time yep. because that's that's his way of escaping it. So the whole kind of scene where Doctor is is just like, oh, there's a bit of the Kroll beast flesh that I could prod with my uh, core of the key to time. Just prod the thing that's grabbed you. And, yeah, but but he's, he's like eyeing it up and then just like confused about everything and like backing away and I don't know, deciding what to do. And then there's a massive tentacle sliding down behind him and then he turns the other way and actually gets grabbed from the side and it's like I don't know it's, it's like all he had to do was walk up to that bit of fleshy crawl <laughs> and go bloop and yeah job done <laughs> And yeah, he has to thrash around for a bit on the floor trying to grab the thing he's dropped. And I don't know, it, it, it was a bit of a, a, sh- a shitty end there. And a, a, yeah, a very hard to understand exactly what was the key to time bit. Yeah. And then, and then after that, we get the, the random, oh, wait, a rocket is going to launch itself. No one can stop it. Yeah, this oh. is the second time in this serial that I, I have written that my respect for bomb diffusers just keeps going down the drain because apparently no skill is involved whatsoever. <laughs> it's just snip, 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 snip. <laughs> snip everything. <laughs> yeah, literally until Doc pulls out the bigger cables and like puts them together. I, I thought he was just cutting every single wire. It's, it's, it's that That's kind what of, he does like, in the beginning. The first time yeah. when he's climbing up the Moonraker set, he actually says, when in doubt, cut everything. Oh, I missed that line. Oh, it's, it's, it's a callback to that. Okay. But it, yeah, it just, it felt like a an unnecessary extra end. Like, how short really was this? <laughs> like, like, was that tacked on as well? It's like, no, you finished the crawl stuff. Why are you trying to make a thing with a, a rocket? And then you get 30 seconds to a minute of the Doctor just cutting random wires Inner thing we can't see. <laughs> yeah. And then just pulls out two random big cables and goes, oh, I hope these are the right ones. See, Boop. speaking of inner thing that we cannot see, I think that's that's actually kind of indicative of what's going on. We have the exact same thing with the book. You know when he's rescued Romana, uh, Romana goes, oh, you know what? I feel like there's a passageway into a subterranean tunnel here. And then Doc just jumps into this hole, disappears for about a scene and a half, and then climbs out of it with this perfect leather-bound tome with gilded edges and starts flipping through it and learns everything there is to know about their religion just by flipping through a couple of pages and then ends that scene by throwing the book back into the hall. We've never seen this tunnel. We don't know where he went. How is this? Like, the book, has he just destroyed their history? Like, <laughs> this book, it, it lands in a puddle. It lands in what sounds like just water. You know what? I I must have blinked big time. I didn't, didn't actually clock Doc jumping into the thing to get it. <laughs> he 100% disappears into this hall and just retrieves a book. But we don't know where he goes. We don't know if it's... like. For all, what we've learned in the serial is that anything closer to the ground, and certainly if you hit the water table, which is what we hear, I mean, we hear a splash when he throws the book back in, then that's crawl territory. You don't want to be there. So that's opening up, that's another scene of the Doctor potentially hiding from tendrils that we could have had, and we didn't. Yeah, no, we're just left with, that was weird. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, actually, one note about the book. I found it kind of interesting. I've written I like, but I'm not sure I do like it. It is interesting that the Doctor makes a reference to the Bayeux Tapestry when talking about the book rather than some Gallifreyan antique or some Gallifreyan object, you know. 
he's talking to a fellow Time Lord. That's very true. Like normally you would let it slide, I suppose, because he's talking to a human and yeah. you kind of expect Doctor Who to talk about human culture. Yeah, exactly. Ah, interesting point. And on the point of antiques, he picks up the padlock that she was, I guess, she was tethered to in some way. And he says, oh, wow, this is a genuine antique. Uh-huh. By what standard? I want to know that. It's like a padlock from, let's say, the early 1900s, late 1800s. Who knows? It's a freaking padlock. And he goes, wow, where did you get this? Where did this come from? It's a genuine antique. And that never gets picked up on later on. But that seems to indicate that stuff has been around for a long time, or it's old. It's not old tech, quote-unquote, but it's... I don't see the Swampies building padlocks. Like, they don't know how to fashion keys. They they don't have locks, right? So if they have padlocks, maybe that's an indication that they had a, a more advanced society before the colonizers showed up. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something about that, but it never gets picked up on as far as I'm aware. No, I think you're overthinking that a bit. Oh, maybe, as, yeah. we, as, as we've established, there are 12 people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there weren't, you know, once on the actual, whatever the planet was called, Delta Magna, that presumably the planet was teeming with life when, when human colonists showed up. Presumably. Do you think they, they just brought over a trunk that happened to have a lock on it? And that's, that's the one yeah, antique maybe. that's left. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 la. Ratings. Well, well, well. The power of crawl. The power of crawl compels you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it didn't compel me, I feel. I think the flavor I am left with in my mouth after this was mostly negative, oh. which, is un- which is unfortunate because I think that there's something in here. There is a heart in this serial that could have brought something you know more fruitful i suppose i think my biggest takeaway though is i will probably forget everything about this serial <laughs> apart from the crawl monster okay like that vision is probably stuck in my brain i'm not gonna lose that i don't think i'm gonna remember the characters the plot anything else from this it was just a bit too undefined a bit too i don't know the stretch you know we we've struggled to work out where the the swampies originated from what their backstory is it's not a sign of a good script really is it we've mentioned that the second to fourth episodes of a serial start with a minute at least of the previous serial because they were short of time they they've stretched this script out um to fill four episodes somehow but we do get some good dialogue in in there we get the odd, the odd little quip, not as much as we probably used to. But the three main humans, we get to spend some time with Thorn and his co, um, have some good interplay. And whilst it may be strangely placed around uh, a new but possibly not great special effect with sensory data on a screen, it's kind of interesting dialogue. It, it makes them work together as a unit. You get to kind of not necessarily care about them more. There's nothing about these characters you're learning, but you're you're seeing an interplay. You're you're feeling like there is a team. There's a reality. There's there's something. You know, the dialogue is setting that pacing. So it kind of works from that point of view. There are some great sets and location shoots. Like the whole thing around the swamp, I think actually filmed quite well. And you felt like it was maybe not otherworldly, but something a little bit out of the ordinary. It's it's certainly not a BBC backlot set. You know, you knew it was 
film somewhere and it obviously wasn't in a quarry or a, a, an old estate somewhere you know they they had found somewhere a bit more interesting so that was good there seemed to be an attempt to kind of dissect religion a little bit i think it might have been possibly offensive mm. you know depending on your your take on religion but the whole idea of worshipping a big giant monster and said monster then appears you know there are there are two sides to that coin being being shown in, in the stage and I don't, I don't think it's it's falling too hard on, on one way or another so it's left you know for the viewer to kind of dissect it a little bit which is the right way to deal with that that kind of thing but then we have the massive massive negative of how criminally underused Romana is she literally turns mm. into a damsel in distress yeah undoing as you rightly pointed out Leon so much of the good work that seems to have happened over the last I don't know two two serials I suppose um like the the last the last serial in particular was a, a Mary Tam tour de force you know <laughs> that's exactly the quote the pull quote on the dvd cover oh really <laughs> a real tour de force no i'm kidding i mean i'm assuming <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there um and to go from from that to this uh feels embarrassing you know um and they they sideline canine as well you know we keep commenting on how surprised we are we enjoy canine and we've got an entire yeah, serial without him exactly it just it read like this script didn't feature well into this uh, particular timeline canine was never factored into it and so they wrote a couple of like bookends to to make that the case which which seems a bit of a cheap cop out um and you know what Another big thing which I find disappointing is I love model work and I was not that impressed with the crawl model. Oh, no. It has, has okay. to be said. Like the big looming thing that's on the horizon as a more kind of mushroom like being with you know a hint of tentacles, that was that was great, you know. Not the, the most uh, impressive uh, superimposed effect, but it was still still a good model. The one with the rig, no. I'm sorry, I lost it with that. Oh, all um, right. And I have to say, you know, I love, I absolutely love models. I love puppetry and models and stuff. It felt like it wasn't cohesive enough. It wasn't driving enough. It wasn't just that interesting. So I can only give this, I think, in my mind, a 1.7. <gasps> Ooh, 1.7 from Jim. Okay, all right. I I like it. A very good mini, and I might I add a hint of tentacles. That's now in the runnings for title of my future biography. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. I disagree with you on the miniatures, but uh, fine. My turn. I agree. I think you really feel the lack of Romana and K9 in particular in this one, and and perhaps we've just been spoiled lately with some primo companion heavy stories, but that that really drags this down for me as well uh, from the get go. Really agreed. Damsel in distress. Yada yada yada. It's a pity. I think you've also opened my eyes to this actually being a fairly Doctor Light serial, which is a real slap on the bum, but you know, in a way that doesn't tickle in the right way. Like, <laughs> don't give me that look. I, I saw you at the last board meeting for the same page club. The thing is, I'd written down a not sorry, I hadn't written down. I had thought of a rating for the serial before we press record tonight. It was much higher than the one that I've written down now. And I, this conversation has just opened up my eyes to maybe some things not being great. But wait, wait, wait. I want to highlight a few good things before I, I, I deliver a terrible rating for this. The humans, 
Mustache, Frankenstein, Mark Hamill, Guy with Belt. They were all great. <laughs> Brilliant interplay between them. Better than we've seen in many similar setups, I feel. I'm thinking of the Planet of Evil, for example. But also not the best rapport between ancillary characters on, on Doctor Who. This is no fang rock. Let's leave it at that, maybe. Production value, like I said, I disagree with you. Production value to me to me is just through the roof in some scenes. The sets are fantastic. The rocket boosters, the main pipeline thingy, the great stuff. Uh, I, I loved the, the costumes that, that they had. Uh, oh, I'm not even going to get into the trivia bits about the green paint not coming off or being dangerous to put as much. It's, uh, you know what? No, screw it. I will read that piece of trivia. Do you mean once it's in your butt cheeks, it's always in your butt cheeks? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it should be. <laughs> yes. Oh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Can I find it? Yeah. The green, this is trivia from Todd's Weekend. The green makeup for the Swampies was specially ordered from Germany. Unfortunately for the actors, the special solvent needed to remove the makeup wasn't ordered at the same time. And so they either had to undergo chemical showers at RAF Brentwaters or have their skin scoured in the hotel. Many had a green tinge to their skin for weeks afterwards. Yeah, great. Good stuff. Good stuff. I mean, they're, they're all giving it up for the sake of us. So yeah, you know what? Production value through the roof slash lovably mediocre in some scenes. The, some of the miniature work is not great, but I love it nonetheless. Here's the thing, though. In this kind of story, if you draw parallels with Dances with Wolves or Avatar, whatever, normally I would expect to sympathize more with the, the subjugated indigenous population, but they were never given any scope to, you know, they weren't particularly sympathetic characters. Lightning Cheeks, for example, was a straight up dick. And and most of what they do is just try to murder the doctor and his his friend. It's like no, what I, what you would normally expect, and it's not a bad thing per se. But like you would normally expect the doctor to to side with them against big industrial corporation, and then you know the good guys win. But I feel like everyone's just kind of a bad guy in many ways in this. You mentioned religion, by the way, a super interesting subject, and I think it could have been delved into more deeply here but it just isn't and that i think is actually what leads me to the greatest flaw of this serial namely that it is really underwritten which is unusual for a bob holmes joint like th there's there's so much stuff going on under the surface uh, <laughs> which just isn't explored so i've given this a 1.9 oh very much same page club then eh? same page club indeed Ratings and spanks. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a metric nut ton of uh, listener minis. How about we get to it? Let's get to that as well. Listener minis. Now let's hear from podcast land. Max 250 or it would get out of hand. Okie dokie. We have arrived at the Lister Mini portion of this podcast episode. Welcome. Make yourselves comfortable. We've got a lot of these. Starting with Peter Zunich. It's the Zoonmeister. What up, Peter? Hello, Peter. Peter starts, I know I'm in the minority, but I simply treasure this story. 
The locations and sets stand out here. They're simple, effective, and it shows that great care was made to facilitate both the action and the filming. They built an air vent used to send signals to the Swampies, a hallway that leads us to believe the rig is a lot larger than two rooms, a temple lined with thick reed fence, and the sacrifice room with a raised entry, sloped roof, and squid emblem around the window. It's all just so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Peter continues, there's a subtle yet vital line in this story that makes the whole Key to Time series more interesting. The Doctor notes that each segment is hidden as a symbol of power or great importance. More accurately, it's the hidden key that has made something or someone powerful. Nowhere is this more relevant than the magnificently gorgeous floppy tentacled, marginally <laughs> split screen, barely moving crawl. <laughs> The attack scenes here are done so much better than John Pertwee's hilarious <gasps> rolling himself up moment from Spearhead from Space. That's the aforementioned, my second favorite tentacle scene. <laughs> <laughs> Peter concludes, in the end, though, the writing gets the nod. The story is simple, but the world-building backstory is so interesting, it makes for something, pun intended, bigger than it should be. It's another ep I rewatch often, and I'm not afraid to admit it. Even though the monster baddie shares similar origins with SpongeBob SquarePants, this story gets a, your ways are strange to us, Dryfoot, 3.2. Mm. Holy moly. That's around about the rating that I had in mind before we pressed record. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I like that he's picking up on a, on a lot of the stuff that we've said as well, except in so, way greater detail. I like all the little uh, bits and bobs of the uh, set designs that you liked, Peter. Excellent mini. Fantastic, excellent, fantastic stuff. Excellent. Yes, thank you so much, Peter. Thank you very much. Next up, who we got? We've got a little bit of flavor from Phil Salter. Phil! Hello, Phil. Phil starts. What's this? <laughs> of course. It's a tale of some green primitives battling invasive technology and those who bring it, whilst revering their god, who happens to have eaten the one thing that might make him godlike. <laughs> A strange story, not really up to scratch with the rest of the season. And then Phil has some random points, I think. Mm-hmm. Point number one. I would call Kroll a good idea of a giant monster, but let's be real here. Why in the budget of old Doctor Who is this a good idea? Oh. Next point. During the sacrifice scene when the Swampies, what a great name, are <laughs> dancing and chanting, Kroll! Kroll! <laughs> Why, oh why, is it not in time? It just seems random. There's no regular time signature to it, and it always infuriates me. But they're still perfectly synced up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. You're just not getting the beat, Phil. (laughs) Next point. Ah, one of these stories where the companion is the only female in the entire story. Yep. And during the countdown towards the end, that countdown timer really looks as cheap as it is. They've not even cut straight lines into the map. <laughs> I know, it's so true. It's so true. Next point, Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes, how can the great man write this thing? Clearly his lowest moment. What's it? <laughs> Sorry, Robert Holmes. Next up, we have a bonus fact. The Swampies had to have chemical showers to remove the makeup each day. Oh, lucky them. <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, a slog to get through, as mediocre as it shouldn't be, given the concept. And Phil gives this 1.6. Oh. Literally half of Peter's rating. (laughs) 
Nice. Stuff. Oh, fantastic. Oh, this is going to be an exciting listener mini section, I can I can tell. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you, Phil. Next up, we've got Chris Dabbs Paddock. Hello there, Chris Dabbs. What up, Chris Dabbs? Chris Dabbs starts, what a load of crap. Sorry, the Ooh. gloves were so quick to come off, but this is a real stinker. Above all, I find it ploddingly dull. There's no suspense in the plot, and the premise is very bland. That's not what you really think, Chris Dabbs. <laughs> the anti-colonialist theme ends up very muddled. The indigenous people of Delta Magna as I shall refer to them, are not portrayed in as racist a manner as the cast of talons of Wen Chiang, but the writers clearly take a sympathetic but dim view of colonized peoples, their spears and their loincloths. Also, maybe it's me, but it seems the slur Swampies is used with such force that I wonder if some of the actors were using it as a stand-in for less savory language. Mm, I hope not but uh, apologies for the amount that we used it as well but chris Apps does continue with all of this discourse however serves to elevate what is fundamentally a very boring serial i'm usually happy to overlook or even embrace rubber costumes and bad cso effects but not here it's boring and it looks cheap and the rating that chris Apps gives this is leon 1.8 Ooh, wow. All right. Here's our friend who agrees with us. Uh, thank you very much, Chris Tapps. Thank you, Chris Tapps. I feel like maybe we should read something with a, a, a really high rating again. <laughs> Just a springboard back? Okay. Let's maybe we'll get that from ah. uh, Mr. Joe Ford. What up, Joe? Doc Oho himself. Hey ho, Doc Oho. <laughs> <laughs> Joe starts, oddly serious for a Robert Holmes script in in the Graham Williams era. This is another much-criticized story that I don't have much of a problem with. There are some moments in there that would turn up on any fan's most cringeworthy scenes, but to balance that, there is some of the best location work we have ever had. That's probably true. A reasonably accomplished gargantuan monster, Crawl, would kick the shit out of Big Man T-Rex, and the stop-motion Loch Ness monster who came from far more visually accomplished eras, and Tom Baker is clearly having a whale of a time. It is a slow story, for sure, but Holmes writes his racism angle well, and the last episode winds up being one of the most gripping of the year, with one action set piece after another. Norman Stewart clearly wasn't a Doctor Who director, his other credit is Underworld, but he at least manages to add a bit of polish to the story, with the atmospheric OB work in the marshes, and even attempts some ambitious physical effects. When you were talking about wasting actors like Phil Maddock and John Abeneri on underwritten roles, then you cannot laud a story too much. But there are a few witty moments, but on the whole it is a flawed but generally enjoyable romp around the swampy alien world. Considering it presents the biggest stereotype in fantasy television, primitive culture, and doesn't entirely suck, it's something to be proud of. <laughs> a silly bit of nonsense, but elevated by its inclusion in the surprisingly consistent season 16. Oh, what and does Joe he give gives, Oh, Oh, sorry. I will tell you. <laughs> I will tell you right this second. Joe gives this a rating of 3.0. Oh, marvellous. Marvellous stuff. <laughs> I like it. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> not, not the heady, heady heights, but uh, springboarding a bit back from the, the lows that we have seen from other reviewers and ourselves. <laughs> yeah, very true. Excellent mini, Joe. People who are not Joe... 
please follow and high-five Joe online. Joe can be found at Doc Oho. That's Doc Oho. (laughs) 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 And check out Doc Oho reviews. Very good stuff. Next up. We've got the Dr. Gamer. The Dr. Gamer. Hello there. The Dr. Gamer starts. Ah, the power of crawl. It's a bit dull, I guess. Pros. Well, I liked the effect of Crawl attacking the building, and the makeup on the green people was also pretty good. And just to give it another pro, as always, Tom Baker is great. Cons. It's all so boring. <laughs> all caps. <laughs> and another con, stating that the characters in this are one-dimensional is an overstatement. All caps. <laughs> <laughs> And overall, says the Dr. Gamer, this story is far from good and only has a few redeeming features. I'm giving it 1.5 green cult people. We got a dud last week in New Who as well. Oh, ah, Forest of the Night. Yeah, that's a pot of crap. Dr. Gamer concludes with, at least next time we get a story that I actually find is underrated. Mm, Looking forward to that. Final Horcrux. Indeed, yeah. End of the series, end of this arcing story. Interesting stuff. Very curious, very curious. People who are not the Dr. Gamer, say hello to the Dr. Gamer online. The Dr. Gamer can be found at Dr. Gamer 789. (laughs) Maybe in sync, maybe out of sync. I don't know. (laughs) Thank you very much, the Dr. Gamer. Next up, we've got Jim the Fish. Jim. Jim starts. The fact that the actors playing Swampy's coloured with the green dye couldn't remove the dye due to the makeup artist failing to get the dye remover, <laughs> leading to the actors having to take chemical baths to try to get it off. That sums up this story adequately. <laughs> it's a real slog because the Doctor and Romana spend a lot of time trudging through muddy swamps with some green painted extras who keep chanting, crawl, crawl, crawl. Like they thought he was going to make it to the championships this year or something. He did. Did you miss it, Jim? <laughs> the only two memorable elements of the story are some guy wrestling with a rubber tentacle and the fact that Cthulhu ha- has a guest cameo as the alien god Kroll. Excellent reference. It's supposed to be based on the work of H.P. Lovecraft. No. But it only proves that neither Robert Holmes nor Douglas Adams ever really read much of Lovecraft, except for what was made famous by August Derleth and thus comes across as a very bad impression of Lovecraft's writing style based on mass-marketed stereotypes and not what the usual Lovecraft story was actually like. Revelation of the Darnocks is actually a lot closer to what Lovecraft usually wrote, using setting and atmosphere to tell more than the plot itself. Tons of world-building. The main characters are a couple of frightened spectators and a ruthless leader, and humans turning into monsters. That is typical Lovecraft. Not this shite. <laughs> and he gives this a crawl out of crawl. <laughs> That's a pretty solid rating, actually. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the Douglas Adams angle is, if I'm honest. I haven't looked into this, so um, apologies. I um, Nope, I have no idea. But I will delve deeper into it. Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, and thank you very much for a brilliant mini, as always. Thanks very thank much. Thank you, Jim. Next up, we've got Michael... Ridgeway. 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 <laughs> that seemed insane to me. 
Hello, Michael. Hello there, Michael. Michael starts. Wait, did did you spot some bigness? <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> oh yes, so big, rivaling the likes of Kroll even. <laughs> Michael starts his review with some likes. The smoking, wisecracking gun runner. More of him, please. Oh bugger, he's been eaten. <laughs> Next like, fake crawl. Hashtag hilarious. <laughs> That's true. That's really good. Real crawl. Looked big, gross, and kind of threatening. <laughs> Michael then includes a few boofs. First, boof. Politically incorrect colonial and racial an- analogies, such as swampy lover. This certainly wasn't the overt racism of Wang Chiang, and I think I can see what the writers were trying to do. It might have worked if the swampies had been the likable heroes of the story, but they come across as really dumb, bloodthirsty, expendable cannon fodder for Kroll. Yeah, true. Indeed. Uh, next, Beef. the Sons of Earth seemed intriguing, but turned out to be a red herring. Yeah, true. Uh, and there are an awful lot of conveniently placed canoes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> There's also no canine. Boo. It should have been floating around on a canoe, randomly sapping swampies, humans, and crawl tentacles. That's true. The last one, the last time we saw him, he was in a rowboat. He was in a boat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, And final beef. Where the fuck is the Black Guardian? (laughs) He was really bigged up in Reboss and hasn't shown. We've only got one story left. He'd better turn out to be Romana in disguise all along or I'm going to be cross. Not Picard episode 10 cross, but cross nonetheless. (laughs) I don't know the reference to Picard. Oh, yeah, I, you know what? It, I just stopped watching Picard altogether and I'm just relying on Red Letter Media going to review it at some point. <laughs> yeah. I'm s- same page, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> white, even White Guardian shit. Like, yeah. something, has, something has to wrap up. Yeah, I want to see <laughs> Colonel Sanders again. <laughs> Michael, Michael does give us a summary. Not as rubbish as forewarned. Oh. <laughs> High praise indeed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> DVD cover. <laughs> and rating 2.2 out of 5 rituals of crawl from which nobody escapes <laughs> except for everybody who escapes which is uh, everybody <laughs> perfect <laughs> that is spot on thank you very much Michael excellent biddy as as bloody always do you thank never you, have a bad day uh <laughs> People who are not Michael, please follow Michael online. He can be found at bad underscore movie underscore club. That's it with the underscores. Don't yeah, do any yeah. more underscores. That would just be stupid. <laughs> Thanks again. Next up, we've got Paul Warren. Hello, Paul. <laughs> what up? Paul starts, there are some great lines which mark the power of Kroll out as a Robert Holmes story. I particularly like the ones about progress being a very flexible word and when in doubt, cut everything. Unfortunately, the other thing about a Holmes story is that he doesn't seem to like writing for female characters. Romana is the only woman and ends up being captured, screaming, and then sidelined, which is a marked decline on the previous story. Hmm. The guest cast, however, says Paul, is Excellent. Doctor Who stalwart Philip Maddock is on form as always, and it's nice to see John Leeson in person, his only appearance on camera, given that K9 is written out from the start. Thorne is particularly menacing, quite happy to use any methods to achieve his aims, and has no qualms about wiping out the Swampies, 
considering this a bonus. Yeah, he's a he is bad news, that guy. Paul continues, The crawl effect is pretty good, taking into account when this was made and the minuscule budget. It would be nice to hear a bit more about Delta Magma, and particularly the Sons of Earth, given how often they are mentioned. But with only four episodes, the limited backstory is understandable. Overall, says Paul, a solid story with a decent guest cast and a good performance from Tom Baker. And the rating Paul gives this is, Leon? 3.5 out of 5 which I think is the highest rating we've had so far today. Holy moly, I think you might be right. Very nice. Excellent stuff. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Does this warrant how big something of Paul's might be? Okay, okay. Jim, put it back in your pants. Okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Paul, I think, I think we all know <laughs> you have a big heart. <laughs> yeah, he does. Of course he does. <laughs> Please, everyone, give Paul a massive hug and high five on Twitter. He can be found at P Waring. That's P Waring. <laughs> Indeed, it is. And what a mini to end on. That concludes the listener mini section of this podcast episode. Thank you, everyone who wrote into this. Thank you all. What have we got coming up next? Next. So we're going to do a new who first, I believe. I would expect a new who, and I would expect it to be Dark Water. Mm-mm. After which, we're back in classic territory for the Armageddon Factor. Wow. Last of the key to time segments. Looking forward to it. Oh, that's going to be super exciting. And at some point, we're going to do an audio who as well. That will be of... An earthly child? That's right. I've listened to it. It's very good. Ooh. It's very good. Exciting. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, but in the meantime, you can say hello to us online. Are you perchance on Twitter, Jim? But of course I am. I can be found at Jimmy the Who. Jimmy the Who, you say? That is exactly what I said. That's what I thought you said. That's good listening, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, you can say hello to me as well. High-five me online. I will high-five you right back. I am at Ponkin for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> Contemplating another rebrand. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. You've been a lovely audience. Until the next time, rock on. Be right next to each other. Stay indoors and stay safe. Cha-chao. Indeed. Yes. Look after each other. But have fun. Don't go crazy. And <laughs> say thank you to your internet service provider. <laughs> oh, <See> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Kablamo! Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends! But I've got no friends! No problemo, tell some strangers! Hey! Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash who back when. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at who back when. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website whobackwhen.com where you can submit a review of your own. Browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, cha ciao. Who back when?